Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone. Before we get started today, I just want to point you to a terrific new book called The Bomber Mafia, written by Malcolm Gladwell, the author of The Tipping Point. And I think it gives really a terrific understanding of how doctrine versus reality can get you into trouble. I think it's a smart book. It's a quick read. Gladwell is always interesting and I think brings new and different perspectives. So can't recommend it more highly. And now on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by co-founder of The Lincoln Project, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, back in action next week, May 25th, and author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks for joining me. Hey, Reed, good to be with you. And fresh off his coffeehouse reading of George Orwell's 1984, I'm joined by my fellow co-founder of The Lincoln Project, Steve Schmidt. Steve, thanks for joining me. Hey, Reed, good to be with you. Hey, Rick. I love dramatic readings from Steve. I really do. For those of you who may have missed it, last week, Steve tweeted a two-part video of himself doing a dramatic reading of George Orwell's 1984. And can I just say, Rick, you know, a couple of our folks were like, he seems to be in a prison or the background seems to be very stark. And I said, I think you're missing the overall aesthetic of what Steve is trying to do, <laughs> Right. which is when you're reading a story about a man who has a rat attached to his head at the end <laughs> of the book. So he says two plus two equals five and can feel good about it. You shouldn't like be in a flower filled garden. Yeah. It's not like Jane Austen. It's not, it's not, <laughs> it's not Victorian Edwardian or any other sort of pastoral English countryside setting. It was a bleak urban dystopia. I almost did it with the infrared setting. <laughs> but I thought it was a little much. And I couldn't figure out why one side of my head appeared to be hotter than the other one in the image, no matter which angle I sat in. So I'm still trying to get to the bottom of that. Well, listen, stay tuned, everyone, for the dramatic reading of Brave New World. We'll have that for you next week. <laughs> But to get to business today, so obviously we won't spend a lot of time on Liz Cheney's ouster from the GOP conference because I think that's been beat to death. And in true American fashion, the sealed bubble that is Washington, D.C. is moving on. But I do want to talk about sort of the pieces of, I don't know if it's detritus, radioactive waste, whatever it is that are coming from that. And Steve, this is one thing that I want to talk about today, and it's the big lie, what it means for 2022. I also want to talk, Rick, a little bit about, you know, the party. Last week we saw there were a group of folks who got together and said, you know, but for the party changing, we will all leave. Over the weekend, Jeff Greenfield said in Politico, you know, the party's over. Forget about it. Charlie Sykes on NBC said, you know, I'm leaving the party. Anybody else who's rational and sane should do the same. So let's talk a little bit about where it started in 1854, 1856, and where it goes in 2021. But before we get to that, Rick, we put out a new spot today called Allegiance, and I want to just play that and we can talk quickly about it. Rob? 
I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. I pledge allegiance to the flag of I the United States of America. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And to, to the, the republic, republic for which it stands. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for Trump. So, Rick, subtlety has never been your best trait. You know, I, I try to leave such a gap there, a mystery in the air for people to sort of scry and, and interpret. But here we are. Obviously, we've seen in the last few weeks something that I think we have been talking about as a group and individually is that it's been surprising in the last 10 days that people are like, oh, my gosh, Donald Trump's still really in charge. Maybe he never really left. So what were we trying to get across with this spot? Our big message here, it comes down to this. It's not just Liz Cheney. It's the entire Republican Party. They have abandoned everything else except for the dear leader, except for this authoritarian vision of what the party should be, which is what Trump says is real, what Trump says is law, what Trump says is reality, what Trump says cannot be gainsaid by any person. And it reminded me very clearly that there are people in Washington, you know, the Mitch whisperers and the Kevin McCarthy explainers who are telling reporters, oh, no, it's normal. Everything's fine. This Trump thing is just in the background. No big deal. It's all gone. We're fine. It's the same party as it always was, but it's not the same party as it always was. After you've been through certain things, it's never the same again. So, I mean, you know, it's crossed over on several levels. It's lost its ideology. And Steve, it's lost any, you know, rational thought, and it has become, as you have talked about, an authoritarian movement. So let's put it in that frame of 2022. You know, we've been asked several times, Stuart and I did a thing last week, folks asked what authoritarianism looks like. How do you get this to the individual voter? But what do you think in the context of the Republicans becoming what they are? What is the frame that we need to think about for the 2022 midterms, even this far ahead of time? Well, it's very, very uncommon in American political history for the incumbent president's party to pick up seats, to win seats in the midterm elections in the House or in the Senate. And so the Democrats have a five-seat majority, and this is a redistricting year. So what does that mean? Well, generously, Republicans will pick up 12 seats, meaning that as you roll into Election Day, functionally, by my count at least, and and I think we'd all be within a seat or two of each other, Democrats start in a deficit of seven seats. So the three times that the incumbent president's party has picked up seats were 1902, 1934, and the last time was 2002. And so what do you have to have happen in order for that trend not to play out? And to simplify it, but I think to still be accurate, it's that you need to create a threat. And the threat can't be illusory. It can't be imagined. It's got to be a real threat. And the threat here is that the Republican Party, an autocratic movement, will take power in one or two of the houses of the first branch of government, the legislative branch. And should that happen, we will see a toehold in power for a group that will abuse it, that will impeach the president and impeach the vice president for no reason, that will vandalize and 
seek to bring government to a standstill for the purposes of creating a crisis big enough to rationalize the return to power of the leader of their movement. And that, of course, is Trump. And, you know, as you said, Reid, though there have been stories suggesting here is the evidence that Donald Trump hasn't gone away, the reality is, is there's never been any evidence to suggest that he isn't the leader of the movement that he created for four years as president and a year as the dominant voice in American conservative politics that prefaced the presidency. And so this fight in 2022 is not a fight over policy. It's a fight over power, the fight over direction. And so the Republican Party that you talked about at the beginning, you mentioned it was born in 1854. And when it was born, it was proclaimed that it would be the greatest party for freedom the world had ever seen. And what precipitated that was the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which allowed slavery to spread westward. And what happened was, is it killed the Whig Party. The slaveholder and the abolitionists couldn't be in the same party anymore, any more than the person who's committed to democracy can sit in coalition with the Kevin McCarthy's and the Elise Stefanik's and others in this moment of time as the Republican Party is withering on the vine, dying, shrinking to a purer, more authoritarian form that seeks to gain power not through building a majority, but to create enough fear in the middle voters who swing back and forth in elections that this threat of socialism, this threat of Joe Biden, nihilism, whatever argument and nonsense that's being drawn out on Fox News is in fact a real threat. All of it based on a lie that will continue to metastasize and mutate and become more dangerous over time. So, Rick, now Trump has, you know, one or two times a week has a missive on the blog that says 2022 was stolen. Last week, we heard on the podcast words from McCarthy standing in the, you know, outside the West Wing saying the 2022 election is settled. Joe Biden is president. Dan Crenshaw from Texas, very conservative Republican, also said the same thing. So, you know, this seems to be a pretty serious turnabout in a few days when they went from ousting Liz Cheney for not being willing to go along with the big lie. Elise Stefanik goes in her campaign to extol the virtues of the big lie. And now you have a couple of prominent Republicans saying, oh, by the way, 2020 was really settled and we're good and we should just move on. What's going on? This is the same thing we're seeing in Washington when you have people who are trying to be the explainers and the gatekeepers for Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy, who tell reporters, hey, it's no big deal. We're just playing a game. We're just winking and nodding. We're playing the rubes. But the reality is they recognize they're lying and they won't stop lying. It is the necessary formation of any loyalty check to Trump that you lie and lie and lie about everything that he has proclaimed in the 2020 election or beyond. You know, these people have abandoned any sort of like moral center because they really like having Donald love them. They really want to feel like that they're part of Donald's circle. This is the key. The big lie yields itself to a permanence of lying that exists always in the temporal present, right? There is no past. There is no future. 
just the present. So in that moment, Kevin McCarthy's not clever enough to navigate that situation. And he has no room to navigate other than from lie to lie, right? So in that moment, sure, it's settled. But in the next moment, it won't. And if they had asked him a different question, it may have yielded a different answer. But one place for sure that this will go is something that you've talked about, Reed, and that's the stab in the back. And this is an inevitable place where this will all migrate over this next year, two years, is this idea of the conspiracy and who's responsible for it that stole the election. And it will become more specific. It will become more nefarious. It will become more anti-Semitic. It will become more race-based on the question of who are the villains, who are the bad guys, as it has in the two political parties that have metastasized from pro-democracy parties of EU, NATO countries into something much closer to fascistic, which are the Law and Justice Party in Poland and the Hungarian Viktor Orban Fidesz Party which is you know where the Republican Party is today. It is not a political party that exists to advance and to continue on to preserve a democratic republic into posterity for our kids and grandkids as a moral proposition, as the only form of government that's ever existed that has come as close as we have been able to come to advancing the inherent dignity of the human being, the human soul. And so now in the 21st century, or so we thought, we had arrived at this moment in time that freedom meant freedom for everybody. And alas, here we are in this moment where we see the reintroduction of voting restrictions that are straight out of a era that we thought was gone and would never come back in this country, to the use of fascist imagery and language, to the type of division and the type of forced amnesia imposed by political authoritarians, where it compels the followers of the movement to surrender their intellectual agency to forget the things that happened just a short time ago or to not be able to see the things that are clearly in front of them. And, you know, and frankly, that's what we refuse to do is to yield in the face of what is clearly a great danger to the country. And so right now, more than anything, Kevin McCarthy and gang are doing everything they can to make people forget and move on from an act of murderous violence around the peaceful transition of power that if we forget and move on from without there being accountability, we guarantee more political violence in the country. And that's what's at stake in these next elections. So the band The Chicks, formerly the Dixie Chicks, have a great song called Not Ready to Make Nice, which was actually a response to their sort of cancel cultural experience, you know, during the Gulf War in 2003. And there's a line in there. It says, can't you just get over it? And I think about that, Steve, because I think it's a little bit different. And it's even more insidious, which is there is an effort on multiple fronts. There's the forget about it caucus. There's the it's not really a big deal caucus. But, you know, they push stuff in Arizona and Georgia voting. 
And then there's the can't you just get over it caucus. And I think they might be the worst because they're the ones who are saying, I know what happened. I accept what happened. I just don't want to talk about it anymore because as Susan Collins says, like we should discuss policy. And I think to me, that's what you're seeing could take hold in Washington, D.C., which is, as you know, Steve, as you have noted, right, our news cycles are 72 hours. They go in, they go out. And now it's like, well, do we have to keep talking about this? I mean, think about all of the things last year outside of COVID and the death toll in the economy that were massive scandals for Donald Trump that would have been impeachable offenses all by themselves that came and went because, one, it was just one more of a type, and two, because just the world moves on so quickly. So how do you keep that front and center? How do you say, I don't care if you're tired of hearing about it. You're going to keep hearing about it. We're going to keep talking about it because if you don't, like the rest of it doesn't matter. This is the defining event of our lifetime, more so than 9-11, more so than the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. It is this event. Here's what happened, to restate it again plainly. Donald Trump lost the election, but he refused to concede. He went out and claimed that the election was stolen. And his evidence was thrown out of dozens and dozens of federal courts. It was nonsense. It was a lie. And what the lie was fundamentally based on was an idea that in the middle of the night, votes flooded in to take it away from the winner, Trump, and give it to the loser, Biden. Black votes from the inner city. And during the months of November and December, which will be historic months when we look back 50 years from now, because it's going to take a generation to repair it, at least. Faith and belief in American democracy was poisoned. It was poisoned by Donald Trump and everyone who abetted that lie until the overwhelming majority of the Republican Party believed the lie. And then on the 6th of January, on a constitutionally mandated day, that's gone on uninterrupted since the 1790s that are part of the majesty of the greatest thing that's ever been invented in the history of the country, bar none, the peaceful transition of power directed by the American people as they grant and withdraw temporary authority under a constitutional system where the rule of law is supreme. President of the United States incited violence. Senator Ted Cruz incited violence. Josh Hawley incited violence. Kevin McCarthy incited violence. Donald Trump Jr. incited violence. They all incited violence with their lying and their language because what it means in a revolutionary country is that you've been occupied illegitimately. And in a country with 300 million guns, it's inherently dangerous. And so what we saw in the six was an assortment of people that are now part of the Trump coalition. Lindsey Graham has said, we cannot win with these people, as opposed to we need to get these people out as a moral proposition. But there they were, the fascist Proud Boys and the fascist three percenters and the Oath Keepers and the man wearing the Camp Auschwitz shirt and the neo-Nazis, and the white nationalists, all fully part of the Republican coalition 
engaged in violence ending in 2021, 200 plus years of tradition, peaceful transition of power in the oldest republic in the world, paid for by the blood sacrifice of 14 generations of Americans. That's why there's no moving on. And this idea that we've lingered too long, this happened four months ago, and it defines our present because the voting rights restrictions are happening tomorrow. The divisions are happening today. Donald Trump is plotting a return to power directly or by exercising his agency as leader of the movement to bestow a Republican nomination on somebody who is committed to the prospect of one-party power permanently in this country, the likes of which we got a preview of during the four lawless, corrupt years of Donald Trump. Rick, let me ask you this question, and let me pardon my French. So you had Liz Cheney stand up. Kinzinger's there. The other eight or nine have been relatively invisible. But let me switch houses here, because you have guys like Pat Toomey, the senator from Pennsylvania, Rob Portman, the senator from Ohio, who, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, would be George W. Bush Republicans, if such a thing still existed, compassionate conservatives. Like, what the fuck is wrong with these guys? I mean, they're not up for re-election. They're retiring. And so they sit there all day, every day, like, oh, I guess. What can I do? I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, why don't these goddamn guys see this as their opportunity to repair a legacy that will be forever tarnished as they look back at whatever bullshit library they get at Villanova or Ohio State or wherever the hell it is they're from? You know, there will be conspicuous absence of the last four years of their time in office. Like, to Steve's point, the board meeting of the Republican Party today that Portman and Toomey and Roy Blunt and all these other people who are going to retire between now and next November sit with is Sherry Adelson, who is a big supporter of Israel, but is also sitting next to the Camp Auschwitz guy and the six million wasn't enough guy, who's also sitting next to the Confederate flag guy, who's sitting next to Ted Cruz, who's sitting next to Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Donald Trump sitting at the head of the table. How do these people look at themselves in the mirror every day? Alcohol? I don't <laughs> know. I mean, seriously, no, not being flippant for a second here. These are people have made two giant moral compromises. The first is they're going to pretend that what they represent and what they believe in and what they do before Trump is what defines them. That's not how the world works. You know, when somebody is a hero, or somebody's a villain, before that moment where you do something extraordinarily courageous or before that moment where you do something extraordinarily evil, you're not defined by everything before that moment after you do that. You know, there are plenty of guys, men and women, in every combat situation in this country's ever been in who were ordinary soldiers or ordinary airmen or ordinary sailors or ordinary Marines, and then a moment happened and they took an action that was bold, maybe at the sacrifice of their own life or their own safety, and they became redefined in that moment. There are plenty of times when people have been upstanding citizens and then they break and do something heinous and awful because you never get to unring the bell of killing somebody or of smacking into somebody as a drunk driver. Good or bad, you're defined by the things that happen in your life. You're not defined just by what's in the past. These guys have all now made a choice. They're like, well, we're going to hide in the bunker. 
We're going to pretend that the old Republican Party that we worked for for years, the moderate center-right party we worked for for years, still exists. We're going to pretend that that's what we believed in. But the question, it's not based in reality anymore. They believed in something different than Donald Trump believed in, and they were silent, or they were elliptical about it. Or they would say things like, I wish he wouldn't tweet so much and we could pass conservative policies. It was always bullshit. It was always a lie. They knew it was a lie. And now on the back end of their careers and their lives, they will be remembered as just more enablers. If they're remembered at all. If they're remembered at all. They will be considered to be the kind of people that we've seen throughout the history of authoritarianism who were comfortable, who were a little smug about who they were and their security and their position in the world. And when called upon to do the hard thing, not the easy thing, they failed. These people have failed. They have failed themselves. They've failed the country. They failed their legacies. Whatever they're going to be now are going to be defined as, and what Donald Trump sent people to murder folks at the Capitol and tried to overthrow a free and fair election by disqualifying tens of millions of African-American voters. They were the quiet ones. They were in the background. They were the ones saying, oh, this is terrible, but don't use my name on the record. So, Steve, let me, I want to go back 160 years to the founding of the Republican Party, because I want to come to the end of it eventually here in this discussion, is that to your point, the Republican Party founded in Wisconsin, 1854, was the moral answer to the amorality of slavery, that the Democrats at that point were the party of slavery and the Whigs were the party of the southern slaveholders and the northern business owners. Their amorality when it came to that position on slavery was their undoing in a very short order, right? They went from being one of the two major parties in 1854 to being wiped off the face of the planet six years later. And it was a moral position that the Republican Party staked out. It was a moral position that Abraham Lincoln staked out at the Cooper Union 161 years ago. We were all lucky enough last year to stand on that very stage at that very lectern where he gave that speech that said right makes might as he dismantled the intellectual and political arguments of the southern slave states. So we are now 180 degrees from that. We're not 360 degrees from that. We're 180 degrees from that over the course of 160 years. So now the Republican Party is bereft of any, in my mind, redeeming or moral feature. So how do we describe their amorality? How do we extol the morality of democracy and individual liberty? And last, is this party salvageable? And if not, one what are we going to do about it? And two, what comes in its place? And I know those are all big questions, so take them as you will. I know that I'm dating myself by citing the genre of like 1980s movies, right? But part of the genre, right, of 1980s movies that speak to politics, right, at the time, like Red Dawn, right? The Russians, you know, could invade America, right? The Rocky fighting the Russian and, you know, in Rocky Four, you know, So I'm not sure like what I ever thought the authoritarians would look like, but I suppose to jump ahead movie wise, I guess I always thought they would have the bad guy from Die Hard. Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman. I always thought they'd kind of maybe have like they'd sound like Alan Rickman, right? Hans Gruber. Yeah, that it would sound like a little Hans Gruber accent. But, um, you know, it turns out that, you know, a lot of these people, not only do they sound like us, they look like they could be your neighbor. And you know, we know some of them. We've known some of them for a long time. And politics has become dogma. And dogma is dangerous in a democratic society. Absolutism is that I'm always right and you're always wrong. 
that in fact you are evil. And one of the things when you look at the sweep of history at that moment of time is the bill was coming due for the country's original sin, its high ideals against the reality of human bondage and the evil of slavery. And so at that time, you know, there was a recognition amongst the southern states who couldn't expand slave territory that the power, the size, the scale, the industrial might, and the moral objections to human bondage to slavery, which was already made illegal by Great Britain, that was already made illegal in most other civilized countries, its days were numbered, and that the South understood unless it could expand, the institution would die politically. So when this vote happens, right, this moral issue is put forward and now it puts the country inexorably on the path to civil war, to a redefinition of the country, its purpose, its ideals through the presidency of the greatest of American presidents, Abraham Lincoln, the first Republican president, you know, which is to follow six years shortly after this is passed. So, Rick, let me point the magnifying glass at us because Steve's point about absolutism is absolutely true. But we operate in a situation where it's not in a vacuum, but we believe absolutely that the Republican Party must be defeated in 2022 and in 2024, that there may be good Republicans, but there's not enough of them who either A, can or B, will make a difference anytime soon. So in you know the words of Nietzsche, how do we as an organization and as millions of people who look into this, you know, avoid looking into the abyss and having the abyss look back at us? Well, I want to say this, and, I, and there was a bubble of news last week. We talked about it a little bit in the podcast last week of this new group of Republicans and former Republicans who have said, if the Republican Party doesn't reform itself, we will leave. And last week, and I said this, I think, on this podcast, you know, I admire a lot of those people. They, they're doing the right thing in many ways. It's good that they're doing this. But I've had some more consideration on this over the weekend, and I took the weekend largely off of social media and off the news. I took a break this weekend, and I really considered this question. And I got to say, Reed, the idea that they were going to call the bluff of the GOP and say, do this or we leave, and that the GOP's reaction wasn't going to be hysterical laughter was always mistaken. The people in the Republican Party today are no more like these people that are talking about forming a new conservative party than we are to passion tribesmen in the hills of Pakistan. We are not culturally aligned any longer with what is a nascent authoritarian and fascist movement. These people have abandoned everything that the Republican Party was. And the folks in these groups that are trying to put it back together again, they don't understand. The patient is fighting against them. The patient doesn't just not want to be cured. The patient wants to kill the doctor. The patient doesn't want to be brought back into the fold. They like what they're allowed to do under this philosophy. They like being able to be the worst people in the world. They like being able to be the racist idiots. They like being able to scream at the top of their lungs and say, you're canceling me if you criticize them. That's fun for them. They're enjoying this. They're having a great time at this. And you're not going to make somebody who's having a great time at a party leave it when there's no discipline and no sanction and no, and no real power of the threat. So if you were one of these groups and you said, oh, well, we'll leave if you don't do what we want, 
And then they go, okay, fuck you. Then what do you do? Because I don't see a new party forming yet. And the answer that came back from the GOP was so quick. You know, you guys are the losers. You're the past. You know, screw yourselves. You know, just leave. And it's funny because we all went through this much earlier. You know, we went through this in the prior years to this. And and last year, you know, in the latest cases, like Steve and I switched in the last year, I guess. But the idea that these people were going to get a response from Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell or anyone else that there's a party here that isn't defined by Trump, Trumpism and authoritarianism was, I think, enormously short-sighted. And the bet shouldn't have been reformer will leave. The bet should have just been, oh, you know what? We're forming a third party. We may not win much. We may only take a few seats here and there. We may only take a few points off you here and there, but fuck you. We're in the game. But right now it's like, I'm going to bluff in the first hand. It just doesn't work. I guess what I would say with respect is we don't have the luxury of fantasy. It can't be part of our equation. And we have to be smart and ruthless in our tactics. You can't make an ultimatum from a position of weakness with no conceivable or arguable entry point to reform the institution that you are demanding reform itself. There's a willful blindness that's involved when you really understand the degree to which the party's been just taken over lock, stock, and barrel by QAnon adherents. You know, what is it, eight, nine, 10 state parties, you know, that are taken over. So I, I don't think it's a primary issue, right, in the fights ahead, you know, but I think that you have a number of delusional statements last week, but the most troublingly delusional was the one made by Mitch McConnell. And I actually think he's sincere when he says this, but he said, and I just, I'd love to hear you guys talk about it a little bit too, which is he said that democracy is not in crisis. He asserted it. And, you know, we certainly as a group have the opposite viewpoint of that. And we can talk more about that, but I just wonder what, what you all think about that. Well, I think that on the McConnell front, his tension, aside from everything else, is that he needs the patina of stability, that everything is fine. You know, to that point, we were on a call this morning talking about, you know, there's this bubble that wraps itself around Washington, D.C., not anything new. But as Rick described it, it's thickened because of the immune response to Donald Trump, January 6th and everything else, that it's hear no evil, see no evil, do no evil. It doesn't want to hear that anything is wrong, you know, as a system. Republicans don't want to hear it. We've been through that. The media is both unwilling from a transitory position and probably an imagination perspective unable to understand it. And Democrats are torn between this, you know, we're really policy people and we like to do policy and we probably really should do something about this, but fighting's not our thing. Why do you think most of the media doesn't understand it? Look, I have a very dark view of it. I think most of the media, they do understand it. But I think what they do is preserve and protect access. There are people in Washington who control the access to folks like Mitch McConnell and folks like Kevin McCarthy. And the press industrial complex in D.C. works in many cases, not all, certainly not all, but in many cases on a very transactional basis. And so you'll get these stories where they'll allow, you know, the Mitch whisperer to say, oh, everything's fine. Trump's almost done. It's over. Mitch is in control. 
and they want access to that person. They want access to McConnell through that person. And that, you know, look, that happens on a bipartisan basis. But in this question we're asking here is, why doesn't the D.C. reporting class cover it that way? The other part is that Washington's media infrastructure has fallen apart in the last 10 years. There is no longer a press culture in D.C. as there was for generations before where they felt like there was a little accountability that had to be had, even if they were occasionally partying with JFK or Bill Clinton, they still sort of said, wait, I've got to step back outside of anything I think about personally and report the story. Now it's this hyper-partisan media environment and the ones that aren't hyper-partisan are hyper-transactional. Well, and then Steve, to answer your question, we should think about a media environment where a staff person leaving a house office or a Senate office and joining a lobbying firm is big news. Like, that's stuff that really matters. <laughs> right, right. Right. Like, it doesn't fucking matter. Nobody cares. No regular human being gives a shit about any of that because it doesn't matter. It's just one apparatchik moving from one part of the ecosystem to another. But that's how it sees itself. And therefore, it has built up all those things. And so it is trying desperately to return to the mean. The problem is, is that the rest of the world, whether or not that's people like us who believe that democracy must be defended aggressively, whether or not that's Republicans who want to become authoritarian or are authoritarian or Democrats who are trying to do their best, you know, stuck a little bit betwixt and between or Americans who are just trying to get through the day. Right. It doesn't fit into any of those boxes. And as I always like to say, you know, look at the initial coverage whenever the next presidential campaign starts and read the reporters stories out of rural Iowa or northern New Hampshire, and it's like an anthropological study of a bunch of people who went to private liberal arts colleges, went to McDill at, you know, Northwestern for their journalism degree, went immediately to Washington, D.C. to try and figure out how to get on TV and get a book deal. Like, that's that's the motivation. The motivation is not, I'm the fourth estate and I have responsibility. It's cultural difference. It's cultural change. All right. So, Rick, here we are you know, 18 or so months away from November of next year. The Republican Party, as I said, started in 1854 with, I think, as lofty a moral and political goal as there was. It is here now. Is it salvageable? I cannot see a path where the Republican Party can be salvaged short of a massive electoral wipeout, which is most likely not coming in the short term for technical reasons. But once you're like, war crimes are okay, and insurrection is okay, and wild corruption is okay, and abandoning our allies and seeking to throw this country into the arms of Putin is okay. Once you say those things and think those things and believe those things, once you believe there's a conspiracy of lizard, alien, shapeshifter, child cannibals. And Jewish space lasers. Never forget the Jewish space lasers. Uh, duh. Hello. But once you start believing those things, you don't have a party anymore. You have a fucking asylum. The base is a monster that they've lost control of, and it's roaring around the countryside like Godzilla, like a kaiju, destroying everything in its path. So these people in Washington, and our reporter friends really should be more diligent about this, in my opinion only, right? I'm not going to tell you how to report your stories, but over and over again, you heard in the last four years, ah, you know, Trump's just, this is all just a show. This is all just for pretend. It's just to play to the base. It wasn't. It was real. The whole time it was real. The craziness was real. The corruption was real. The indifference to human suffering was real. And the same people are out there now saying, oh, don't, the party's fine. Everything's great. We don't need to change or reform. What could go wrong? One of the things that, you know, first rule of politics is, right, no Nazi comparisons, right? You can't talk about the 1930s, right? And mostly because of the moral 
obtuseness, right, and offensiveness of the comparisons, right? So you'll have some American billionaire who goes out and says that, oh, you know, my tax rate went up marginally. It's like I got sent to Auschwitz, right? Like these are the comparisons that get made. But um, probably the most important contemporary historian, one of the great historians of the period of the Third Reich, Richard Evans, the British historian, he posits, right, that there's nothing more important to understand than the collapse of democracies in the aftermath of World War One and the rise of these totalitarian movements. In his first book, he really examines the rise of the German Third Reich starting in about 1870. And, and the point being that all of this always has a long tail. And it's so important to understand what the markers are, what the dangers are, what's happening in the moment, and bring it full circle around. I think that if you understand and you study that period, and specifically and in particularly to the people who objected to it, and objected to it early, right? They were always called alarmist. They were always called crazy. They were always small in number. And I, I do think in just, you know, from personal experience, couple situations in my life, by anecdote, but a broader reading of history and stories that people, whether it's climbing Mount Everest or dealing with a totalitarian movement or being in a fire or anywhere in danger, underreact to the danger. People have a hard time seeing the danger that is plainly and clearly in front of them. Certainly, it's true of our political class. And, you know, historically, if you understand that period and you understand this noxious mix, this witch's brew that's brewing in this country, that's brewing around the world, we're in a new era. And the thing to understand about the era of the 1920s and the 1930s and the aftermath of the First World War was that it was a world that was coming apart. It was ending. An era was ending. And we are at the end of a long era. We are, we are at the end of the long lifespans of the last of the participants, the last human beings who stormed the beaches at Normandy or dropped from the skies or that survived the Nazi death camp that were eyewitness to these events. And I don't think it's coincidental that you see pronouncements that would be recognized as racial theory on Fox News. If it happened 30 years ago, there would have been tens of millions of people alive who recognized instantaneously what it was that Tucker Carlson was talking about. We are in the early years of a dangerous era that zero sum, one election away at an executive level from being the last American election. There's no guarantee of perpetuity to the American Republic. And it may turn out that the observations of our founders, of Lincoln, of de Tocqueville, of so many others about the American character were correct in the observation that the threat would come from within. The threat would come from within. And maybe the thing the American Republic can't survive is the internet age and the destruction that it wrought in the ability to discern reality, 
from alternate reality, truth from the lie. Because truth is fundamental to the lifeblood of a nation. I would say it's even different than that. It's the not only the ability or inability to discern truth from fallacy, but the ability and willingness of so many people to climb inside that bubble of untruth and run reality, stay there, revel in it, and push it onto other people. It spreads like a disease. And I think we've seen that. And speaking of spreading like a disease. Are we talking about Matt Gates? <laughs> well, that's for a different show. But he's involved. So Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates will be holding their second America First rally in Mesa, Arizona, this coming Friday, May the 21st. I would ask each and every one of our listeners, oftentimes you ask, what is it we can do? I think there's a couple of to-dos today. One is go to the Eventbrite and type in America First Rally. Go ahead and get register for a couple of tickets. And if your kids are on TikTok or know any K-pop fans, let them know too. <laughs> you don't have to live anywhere near Mesa, Arizona. Let's just make sure that all those tickets are long gone before they ever get to Mesa. Also, maybe give the good people at Marriott a call and ask, is this the kind of folks you want on your property? Is such an iconic American company? I, I don't think they probably do. Well, on that note, gents, thank you so much. If you're looking for Steve, you're hearing him today. I think you'll probably see a little bit more of him. You can find Rick at the Rick Wilson. And of course, you can find me at Reed Galen. Until the next time, thanks everyone for joining us. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, all shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.